thank you. Thank you very much, Akhil. And thank you all for coming. I'm really um, delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you about um, my book. And I have the picture of the, the book there for, for multiple reasons, just sort of for advertising. But also, um, as those of you who publish books know, that the question of the cover is one of the most fraught part. You know, it's hard to research. It's hard to write. But the cover, and when you're working on refugees, there are just so many terrible things that can happen with the cover. And I'm, I'm, I'm really very pleased um, with this one. So all, all the things I feared didn't happen. So let me begin. Um, places such as Borja Barajne, Jadash, and Wehdet, Palestinian refugee camps where I conducted field work for my book, do not look like refugee camps. Can people, is that good? Ah, yeah. Um, they don't look like refugee camps as commonly imagined. Right? Camps are usually thought of as a sprawl of tents closely managed by humanitarian actors. And most camps did begin as tent encampments, but as the mass displacement of Palestinians in 1948 dragged on, first over years and then over decades, they had to evolve. And such change in the built environment is inevitable in any human settlement that's in existence for 70 years. And yet it often comes as a surprise that refugee camps, like other spaces where people make their lives, have histories. So all of the 58 Palestinian camps officially recognized by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA, along with 10 unofficial camps that are also acknowledged by the agency, they've all gone, undergone tremendous change in shape and form in their decades of existence. And as sites of aid provision and spaces for living, refugee camps reveal unanticipated transformations in humanitarian practice and procedure over the long period of Palestinian displacement. So again, these are, these are pictures of camps now, recently. And if we can go back and see sort of what, what some of the camps looked like um, in, the, in the sort of early years after 1948. So as I said, many of them, most of them did begin in this kind of a classic looking refugee camp way of tents. In this picture on the left, the, this large tent in the front is being used as a school. Um, but also some camps um, began their life as sort of repurposed um, the ar army barracks being used as camps. And then, you know, there's a, as you sort of look at some of the transformations that happen over time, some camp, as tents began to be replaced, initially they're replaced by kind of these prefab um, sort of buildings that you see on the right, but that's, but still humanitarian management is evident, right? This is a, a sort of clearly planned space, and that begins to kind of go away over time. So whenever humanitarian activity stretches out over time, planners and field workers are forced to confront the limits of its orientation to the present. So with its definition as a crisis response, with the goal of saving lives and moving on, humanitarian practice usually focuses on needs that are both urgent now and that can be addressed now, rather than on planning for change. And humanitarian interventions frequently have short mandates and temporary funding streams, which also limits their planning horizon. But humanitarian emergencies rarely end on schedule. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates, for example, that two-thirds of the global refugee population experience protracted displacement. So scholars, practitioners, and publics all really have to confront the fact that long-term humanitarian presence is not exceptional. Now, humanitarianism has never been a single thing, but its interventions are broadly united by the conviction that people have a mutual responsibility to react to conditions of human suffering and that such reactions can alter at least some of these conditions. And it is structured by sometimes competing demands of compassion, obligation, and governance. The call for compassion links people across a vast humanitarian circuit as aid agencies send appeals that frequently include the images of, of victims to mailboxes and inboxes around the world. Humanitarian obligations are most clearly encapsulated in international legal regulations meant to protect civilians and refugees. The absence of robust enforcement mechanisms in international law, of course, means that these obligations are regularly disregarded. Humanitarian governance pursues the double goal of addressing need and containing threat. 
so it's a practice of care that entails significant coercion. And understanding the shifting interplay of these humanitarian facets in the many circumstances of protracted displacement across the globe demands consideration of the long Palestinian refugee experience. And the histories of refugee camps reveal ch changing dynamics of living in long-term displacement. So just to bring us back uh, to more recent images of the camps, you can see, again, over the years, the kind of building that happens that makes the, the humanitarian structure kind of become lost a little bit in the conditions of people living in these camps and using them, using the buildings, using the uh, pathways in ways that, that might not, not have been planned. Um, and th these are images from uh, Borja Barajne, which is a camp um, basically in Beirut, the southern suburbs of Beirut. Um, and one thing just to note, like every camp has its sort of distinctive features, right? There are things that are shared across camps, but they, but they have their distinctive qualities. Notable, like the things that, that really strike one visually in Borja Barajne are both these very narrow pathways. So these are like basically the streets of the camp. There are a few places where things are wider, but this is the most common. And also the kind of jerry-rigged electricity wires. But here I also want to note that, you know, so the camps are, are like each other and distinct from each other and are also connected to the places where they are. So this kind of, you know, jerry-rigged electricity is a distinctive feature of Palestinian camps, but it's also a distinctive feature of Lebanon, right? So it's, it's you know, a feature of the camps in Lebanon partly because they're in Lebanon. So camp spaces and humanitarian apparatuses are sites of politics. And there's a clearly evident humanitarian politics of life, right? The governance of bodies and populations in the management of aid delivery. And this politics of life involves not just attention to the welfare of populations, but also a politics of distinction that, as Didier Fassan puts it, entails deciding the sort of life people may or may not live. Now, humanitarian actors may not claim the prerogative of these decisions, and they generally disavow it, but humanitarian work enacts them at every turn. So the delineation of the refugee category and the procedures that govern access to it is such a decision. So too is the food people receive, the shelters they are provided, and the withdrawal of services. And in protracted displacement, these decisions reverberate across generations. But also evident in the camps is a politics of living, by which I mean the ways that people survive and strive within humanitarian spaces. Like the politics of life, the politics of living has transgenerational effect. And such politics is pursued in part despite humanitarian restrictions, which include an insistence on political neutrality and the effort to create and maintain a humanitarian space apart from the political field. And the politics of living is also advanced in and through humanitarianism, which in fact offers mechanisms through which refugees act politically and a language in which they press claims. So attuned to what is a very uneven distribution of capacity, opportunity, and influence across the humanitarian field, I seek to understand both the contours and conditions of life lived in relief and the form that politics takes when it is pursued under the writ of the avowedly non-political, neutral actor, the humanitarian apparatus. And in my book, I explore refugee lives and politics across the length and much of the breadth of Palestinian exile. I describe intersecting but not identical experiences of both providers and recipients. And I should say that these categories are not separate. Right? The vast majority of on-the-ground aid practitioners are themselves refugees. So you can think about you know, practitioner and refugee, but that's not a demographic difference. It's more a positional difference. And I track both the politics of humanitarianism, that is how it shapes subjects, alters societies, and enforces or disrupts geopolitical inequities, and politics in humanitarianism how people living inside the system seek to change their circumstances, make claims of various kinds, and lead their lives in ways in which they and their community see value. And these different aspects of humanitarian effect are not wholly separable, right? What people do with humanitarianism is inextricably intertwined with what it does to them. And I try to explore this complex relationship without painting a picture of either utter objection 
or describing a scene of unending resistance, because neither would capture the conditions of humanitarian life. The displaced Palestinians live across the globe. I focus here on the geography of near displacement. Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, which are the five fields of UNRWA operations in the Middle East. Um, and so this is a map of those um, fields. And you can't see the numbers from here, but these are, these are the refugee camps um, across these areas. And basically, the size of the circle gives you a sense of population size in the camp. So in 1948, when around 750,000 Palestinians left their homes in the course of the struggle over the end of the British mandate and the establishment of the State of Israel, they anticipated that they would return home in relatively short order. Instead, by 2018, there were over 5 million refugees registered with UNRWA. So 70 years after their initial displacement, multiple generations of Palestinians have remained refugees and have lived their lives in various relations to a changing humanitarian assistance apparatus. And the problem of politics has been at the center of their efforts, not only to live, but at least sometimes to live well. And my sources for this project are both archival and ethnographic. So the documentary record, which has UNRWA's archive at the center includes material basically that covers this full time and geography. My ethnographic field work was conducted over a six year period, not six years of work, but across six years, basically from 2008 to 2014, primarily in four refugee camps, Jeddah, Wihdet, Borjbarajne, and Dehesha, in three fields of operation, so Lebanon, Jordan, and the West Bank. Uh, when I began the project, I intended to do field work in Syria. That became impossible, and I did work um, in Gaza before, which I draw on for this project. So in the camps, I interviewed hundreds of people, refugees from multiple generations and humanitarian workers, and I observed a number of different humanitarian projects in action. So again, just to, to give you a bit of a sense of the kinds of things that I was looking at, I was trying to, in each in, across these camps, look at a range of humanitarian projects, but also a range of different kinds of humanitarian projects and organizations. So including, you know, the sort of big parts of the major organizations of the, of the humanitarian club, like MSF, Doctors Without Borders. So I looked at a mental health project in Borja Barajne, and also local Palestinian-run NGOs, um, UNRWA projects, the Campus and Campus is kind of an experimental educational project, and then including also, um, a Muslim Brotherhood um, or, uh, organized center. So, just so the, there's a multiplicity of actors who make up the humanitarian field. UNRWA is at the center, both of this apparatus and at the center of my exploration, but it's not the, the only agency um, that I'm looking at. So over the course of many decades of displacement, Palestinians and aid providers have been caught in the movement between the humanitarian situation, right, the emergency that presents itself as pressing and which mobilizes a humanitarian machinery, and the humanitarian condition. The less acute but no less fundamental experience of living and working in circumstances of long-term displacement and need. So the move between stasis and crisis between chronic need and emergency conditions that is part of this extended humanitarian time produces the challenge for humanitarian actors of being buffeted between the catastrophic and what Beth Pavanelli calls cruddy conditions, and then trying to respond alternately to both. And refugees make their lives amidst these shifts. So I term these layers of oscillating experience punctuated humanitarianism a concept that's intended to try to capture the shifting rhythms of change, right? So from slow and impercept nearly imperceptible to sudden and dramatic, the variety of efforts to respond, and the disruptions that they produce. I should say that even as one can describe trajectories of change over time, right? The humanitarian system looks different in 1956 and in 1986, long-term humanitarianism does not follow a linear progression. So aid providers express frustration with having to cover the same ground over and over 
and anger with the apparent incapacity or unwillingness of political actors to resolve the underlying conditions that make emergencies repeat and chronic need persist. So when the smoke clears from whatever latest round of catastrophic violence, humanitarians make the rounds to see what remains of the lives that people were living and of the projects that their agencies were supporting. And so there's kind of a double humanitarian condition produced by the returned and ever-returning crisis. There's on the one hand a renewed clarity of purpose in the face of emergency, along with a growing sense of being trapped in a vortex of futility. And for recipients, punctuated humanitarianism further means that people move in and out of different relationships to the humanitarian apparatus. Sometimes humanitarians cannot reach people. And sometimes aid workers cannot do much for them. In the chronic conditions in the in Wihdat camp, for example, many people I spoke with professed no real connection to humanitarian services, even as they lived in a camp, sent their children to UNRWA schools, and sometimes at least received health care from UNRWA clinics. But what they felt to be their most acute problems, poverty and lack of opportunity, they managed on their own. So as one camp resident put it to me, contrasting current conditions with a past when UNRWA provided rations, today we are men and fathers. We run after the loaf of bread. And the loaf of bread here in Jordan is round, so it can drive away. So we'll keep on going away, and you'll keep chasing after it. And this is it. If you work, you eat and live. If you sit down, you'll be hungry. And this is our life here in Jordan. So this real sense of being sort of on your own to manage your troubles. But if we sort of look to an earlier time, so that's you know the conversation I had in 2011 in Wehdat. Um, in 1970, a major conflict in Jordan between Palestinians and the Jordanian government led to the destruction of a number of refugee camps, Wehdat and Jerash included, where I did research, and and then a reemergence of a of an acute humanitarian apparatus. So the image on the left is of that destruction, and then here it's sort of rations being provided in the aftermath. And so this is just one of many instances where you have sort of a return to acute need in the, in the context of, a, of another catastrophe. So the oscillations of punctuated humanitarianism are also felt in the relations between humanitarian actors and refugees. And the terms in which they understand each other slide between suspicion and affinity. The judgments that they make of each other move across the spectrum. Right, from refugees as conniving and lazy to refugees as industrious, resilient, and capable. And then humanitarians as duplicitous and treacherous to humanitarians as caring and allies and advocates. And these judgments often coexist. So for both providers and recipients, the challenges of long-term punctuated humanitarianism produce tremendous frustration right, to the degree that people can feel defeated. But defeat is not the only response. Humanitarian actors and recipients have also met these circumstances with creativity and experimentation, seeking ways around the impasses of the Palestinian present. And of course, these impasses have been different in different presents. The humanitarian space that is intended to create a zone for survival can also produce opportunities for action. And no shift is ever permanent. Right? The pendulum always swings back the other way. So I want to turn now to the question of politics of this. Palestinians have not only mourned their repeated losses, but have also made them grounds for political claims, insisting, for one, on the obligation of the international community to address refugee suffering. But refugee politics is not pursued in a single register. It is multivocal and frequently discordant. Palestinians have not only named the refugee as the suffering subject. They have also identified the refugee as a rights-bearing category. They have claimed service delivery to be a matter of justice. And they have used humanitarian tools as part of tentative and often partial means of moving to non-humanitarian futures. And of course, have also confronted the limits of humanitarian possibility. Palestinian refugees have insisted not only on political rights, but also on a right to politics. And this politics engages different temporalities, near and distant futures, different geographies, right, close and far places, and goals of different grandeur, liberation versus improvement, often at the same time. 
beyond the politics of suffering, it has also been expressed as a politics of aspiration, of existence, and of refusal. And these multiplicities are often discordant, but they also persist together. And I want to maybe say something here about this photograph. Um, this is an UNRWA photo. And for people who are familiar with sort of Palestinian iconography, the image of keys is a really central one. And those are generally in that iconography, it's keys to your, to your homes in Palestine. These are different sort of keys, actually. These are keys to houses, where people are moving out of tents and being given keys to, to new houses in the camp. And, and you know, that question of settlement, settling into living differently in exile, <coughs> is one of the sort of spaces of, of fraughtness around um, this politics. So in identifying Palestinian refugee politics as discordant, I, seek, I point precisely to these tensions and also to the possibility that pursuing politics along these sometimes contradictory paths may be part of what enables politics to continue in the face of so many obstacles. <laughs> so to the extent that refugee politics of aspiration has the goals of liberation, return, and restoration, it is closely aligned to the Palestinian nationalist movement. But to the extent that it also has goals of improved living conditions and greater rights in countries of residence, it can be in tension with the official voices of Palestine. Demands made in the register of existence and persistence, persistence are for one directed outward, right, for international recognition of the existence of a Palestinian national community with rights. And these demands are also directed inward, right? Palestinians insisting to other Palestinians that they live as proper political subjects. And refugees perceive all of these efforts, however disjunctive, as essential to addressing their needs and claims. So for example, uh, refugees met the visit by UNRWA's commissioner general to Jordan in 1961 with a petition highlighting two urgent demands. The first was water. This is a basic necessity. For the last few years, we've been enduring much suffering for the lack of water in the camp, particularly in the summer. We therefore ask you to comply with this request of ours as soon as possible. And the second urgent request was that you should inform the United Nations that we will never be able to forget our dear homeland, no matter how long we shall have to endure this miserable condition. We shall not accept any substitute for our homeland, nor relinquish it for any bribe. So need and right, personal survival and national liberation were identified here as equally vital demands. And the continued pursuit of politics amidst the obstacles of opposition by powerful state actors, legislated restrictions on opportunity, ongoing impoverishment, and repeated violence indicates the strength of an intertwined discordant politics. The periods of political immobilization also confirm the limits of its flexibility. As regard their ultimate goals of restoration, return, and liberation, Palestinians can hardly be said to have been successful. But they have achieved widespread recognition of their political existence and acknowledgement that they have political claims. Given the forces arrayed against them, this recognition is no small achievement. So I want to turn now to consider the refugee category as a setting for politics. And there's an apparent contradiction in the fact that the humanitarian category refugee is both a starting point for political life in the humanitarian con condition and is not meant to confer political status. It is rather intended to suspend politics and instead privilege basic human life and humanitarian protections. And this absence of political status is one of the lines along which the refugee is formally distinguished from her putative other, the citizen. Now, of course, we know that the refugee category is always tremendously political in a range of ways. Right? Decisions about who qualifies for entrance into the category, determinations about the benefits that derive from this status, and the distinctions that are made between these persons and other related categories, like migrants, internally displaced persons, undocumented immigrants, they all reflect political judgment. So recognizing the category saturation with political effects, it still matters that those who live within or live excluded from the refugee category and who pursue their politics as refugees do so without an ascribed political status. 
Now, Hannah Arendt and Giorgio Agamben might suggest that this lack of status creates a fundamental block to possibility, ensuring that refugees can be apprehended only as bare life or scum of the earth. Arendt argues that the greatest loss for those refugees who are robbed of citizenship status is not the specific rights of citizens, but rather the capacity for full humanity. Right? This is the well-known right to have rights. And developments in international humanitarian law in the years since Arendt wrote, specifically the elaboration of the post-war refugee regime, were intended to mitigate the consequences of the loss of citizenship and to ensure that there are basic protections for humanity. But these protections are distinguished from political rights. So because of this suspension of politics and the insistence that refugee status confers only humanitarian rights and protections, expressions of refugee politics create problems for their recognition as refugees. So the bargain of humanitarian categories and assistance seems to require that refugees keep that part of themselves in abeyance. But of course, the humanitarian relation is not, in fact, a contract. And those who become refugees have not necessarily signed on to this limit. And they often do not act accordingly. So in declared contrast to Arendt and Agamben, Jacques Ranciere proposes that ascribed categories might matter less than the actions that people take. Um, and he sees political dissensus, right, his term basically for politics, as a conflict about who speaks and who does not speak, what has to be heard as the voice of pain, and what has to be heard as an argument on justice. So refugee politics challenges existing frameworks for political contestation. Specifically, it expands the grounds on which people make claims within a political space and opens up the category of people who can claim to have standing for making such claims. So again, where the classic category for standing in the nation state is the citizen, refugee politics invites others in. But still, the category matters. And accounting for how it matters does not involve just choosing between Ranciere and Arendt. The refugee category does not perform a simple or complete exclusion from politics, but it does shape how refugees stage scenes of dissensus. Political capacity, that is, is not generic, but specific. So much of the politics that refugees engage in is precisely around the elaboration and alteration of the category. So the aim of refugee politics is not only that refugees be recognized as political actors, you know, political people who happen to be refugees, but also that the category be understood as world-forming in itself, right? And so this is in contrast with Arendt, who describes the refugee condition as world-poor, describing a rejection of one's present position. We don't like to be called refugees. And a sometimes diluted faith in a future lived in a different category. But it's important to underscore, refugee articulations of possibility do not always and only express themselves as an exit strategy. Displaced persons in various circumstances dwell with and within this category as they enact community, press claims, and experience futurity. So even if they, cannot off, even if they often cannot affect a radical change in the world in which they live, the insistence that the refugee is a political subject as a refugee can make a significant change in how the political field is understood. And in the Palestinian instance, people are not only distinguished from citizens as refugees, but are distinguished from most other refugees by the particularity of their refugee definition. So the category of a Palestinian refugee has always been an incomplete one. It is an operational rather than a legal one developed to identify those persons eligible for UNRWA services rather than to account for Palestinian claims to property, to return, and to national self-determination. UNRWA's basic definition of a Palestinian refugee is a person, quote, whose normal residence was Palestine for a minimum of two years preceding the outbreak of conflict in 1948, and who, as a result of this conflict, has lost both his home and means of livelihood. So because the first concern of the definition was access to relief, definitional discussions quickly centered around the question of eligibility. And here, operational instructions were key to the ongoing work of category elaboration. So women who married non-refugees lost their eligibility and therefore fell outside the category, along with their children. People who had financial resources in 1948 were never registered. 
Those who acquired income later were moved into new categories that were elaborated to describe non-relief eligible refugees. And to I don't know, com complicate or clarify um, this very um, complex definitional terrain around uh, the question of the Palestinian refugee, you know, the center is the, the basic definition which I quoted to you. And sort of these are a range of issues that kind of surround that central definition. So there's questions about status, right? Those people who might meet that definition but were never registered. Maybe they, they went beyond the area of UNRWA operations, so they weren't registered. People who lost el lose eligibility, um, generally for income, are also moving. Um, and then you have, a, you have a series of people who are meet the, the definition, the basic definition of a refugee, but are deemed non-eligible for relief, which is what the definition is meant to determine, um, again, for, for a range of reasons, um, you know, marriage among them. And then there are people who do not meet all of the criteria for, for being a refugee, but who have demonstrated need directly as a result of events of 1948 or other events in, in Palestinian history, um, but who and but can't be registered because they are not refugees. So for example, the Gaza poor, there many people and many native inhabitants of Gaza own property and or the property that they owned was on the other side of what became the armistice line. So they lost their property, they lost their means of livelihood, but they didn't lose their homes. And so they didn't qualify as refugees. Um, and then the the definition is really a time base. It's about 1948. So those people who were displaced for the first time in 1967 are recognized as displaced Nezahin, but they're not refugees, Lejain. And that has consequences for what kinds of services they can get. Oh, and then just to move, sort of move slightly beyond the, the question of individuals, there is, of course, you know, surrounding the, the UNRWA definition, there is what has become the sort of general definition of a refugee. It took quite a long time for that really to become universal. The Palestinians are excluded from the 1951 conventions. They don't come under its terms, but those discussions about what a refugee was influenced this definition. And then the UN Conciliation Commission for Palestine was meant to be the pair, paired institution along with UNRWA. Right? So UNRWA was providing services. The UNCCP was meant to address issues of political resolution, restitution, return. It was never able to, um, certainly to accomplish those goals, um, but not even really able to do anything towards that mission. And in this way of UN things, it has never been dissolved. Um, it, continue, it, it issues annual reports that say every year that it has been unable to fulfill the, its mandate. Um, so policing the category boundaries all around the, this um, was made urgent by the fact that limited financial resources meant that there were strict ceilings on the number of people who could receive rations in each country. Ceilings that inevitably meant that some eligible people, notably children, were not allowed onto the rolls. So this is like another problem. You know, somebody might not fit into any of these categories I would exclude, but if, are, if the rolls are full, there's, there's no place for someone. So the investigation procedures, which resulted from concerns with rectification of the roles, which involved purging the list of fraudulent registrations and keeping up with changes in income or, or other status that affected eligibility for rations, these kinds of investigations were an enormous source of tension between UNRWA and the host countries, as well as between UNRWA and the refugees. And as would be expected, the vast majority of eligible refugees registered for aid but there were occasional refusals. So why might some people refuse? And why might other people wish that more refusal had been possible? One reason, of course, is the existential crisis that sudden need produces, right? The experience of finding oneself suddenly dependent and in need when one had always been self-sufficient is humiliating. And another reason are the political consequences that people see arising from humanitarian assistance. So the stakes for refugees in refusing or trying to refuse the help that they so evidently need are both biographical and historical. So refusals constitute an effort on the part of individuals to reject a life trajectory of displacement. And refusals in the immediacy of crisis are also an attempt to change history, right, to resist the implementation of a humanitarian apparatus and forestall the emergence of a humanitarian condition. 
In the course of my research in the Jeddah refugee camp in Jordan, which is a camp populated largely by people who were refugees to Gaza in 1948 and displaced a second time to Jordan in 1967, I heard several stories of refusing registration. And the circumstances of double displacement mean that the camp residents have experienced at least two threshold moments. So Jamal, whose family are from the Beersheba region in southern Palestine, described an instance of post-1948 refusal. When the family was displaced to Gaza, his grandfather, as head of household, refused to register them with UNRWA because he did not want to be a refugee. And since refugee status is passed down to children through the male line, this initial decision to refuse has reverberated for generations. So following UNRWA criteria, Jamal's family are considered Nezahin, displaced in Jordan rather than Lejin. And this distinction has real consequences for the family's eligibility for humanitarian services. And registration refusals also reveal the multiplicity of hierarchies that are present in Palestinian life and in which humanitarianism is complicit. So UNRWA's choice to have the head of household do the registering and to have the status descend through the male line has meant that the humanitarian system is patriarchal. And in this aspect, UNRWA policy resonates with gendered and generational hierarchies that are part of Palestinian society. So registration refusal didn't disrupt these hierarchies, but rather revealed their effects. Another refusal story I heard in Jeddah, this one about the second displacement to Jordan in 1967, shows how refusal could be a source of contention within families and how people may try to disrupt some of these hierarchies. So Imtaha, originally from Iraq, Sweden in Palestine, described how Jordanian officials registered people coming across the Allenby Bridge into Jordan. Her husband, Abu Taha, did not want to register because he was afraid that registering in Jordan would mean that his family would not be able to go back to Gaza. So his concern was not about being registered as a refugee per se, right? The family was registered but with maintaining his status as a refugee registered in the Gaza field. So he was trying to refuse a second displacement. As he sat at a distance from the registration table, Imtaha, concerned first and foremost about getting help for herself and her children, told me that she registered herself as being the wife of another man, who she said had been missing for six months. And in this way, she got a tent and food supplies despite her husband's refusal. So this case was a secondary refusal in several senses, right? Abu Taha refused a second registration, one that would confirm his second displacement. Imtaha refused Abu Taha's refusal, choosing the immediate welfare of her family over a claim about principle. And while his refusal may have tried to disrupt paternalism, it underscored patriarchy. And Imtaha's refusal of his refusal intervened in the second sort of hierarchy. Now, individual refusals of humanitarian categories and aid baskets illuminate principles and politics of refugee action, but they were rarely articulated in precisely those terms. These minority actions tend to fade into the background of the much larger story of refugee registration and the widespread and initially comprehensive aid system. So even as the effects lingered for individuals, they're not really part of the collective story of displacement. If anything, the, re the role that registration refusal plays in this collective story is precisely its absence. So in my conversations with Palestinian refugees over the years, I heard many people lament that there was not more refusal by Palestinian refugees to enter into the humanitarian system after 1948. And this lamentation must be understood as part of the extremely conflicted feelings that Palestinians have about humanitarian aid in general and UNRWA in particular. So on the one hand, UNRWA's presence is viewed as an acknowledgement of the international community's responsibility for Palestinian suffering and its obligation to restore their rights. And on the other hand, people identify the persistence of humanitarianism as an impediment to a political resolution. And some see it as part of a concerted plan to thwart Palestinian aspirations. So refusal at the very edge of possibility, which refusing aid in circumstances of acute need certainly is, can rarely change much, precisely because it is inevitably so rare. It illuminates the perceived stakes of entering the humanitarian system and underscores how difficult it is to remain apart from it. I want to turn now to say a little bit more about the different forms of <coughs> refugee politics. 
is, of course, the discordances in the politics of refugee status are heightened along boundaries of entry and exit. And I've been describing concerns about entry. Achieving the ultimate goals of Palestinian politics would mean an exit from refugee status. So far, these goals have not been achieved. But the refugee category permits a politics that does not depend on exit. Nearer goals of better service, representation, and opportunity are pursued and realized, when they are realized, within the category and life of a refugee. Refugees act politically within this category in multiple ways. They take a range of different kinds of action to alter their present and future conditions. These include protests and petitions for better service and more opportunity, and also making changes to shelters and camps without waiting for assistance or permission. And also just to say a little bit about this photo, this is from the American Friends Service Committee archives. The AFSC was the first agency that provided aid in Gaza before UNRWA was established. And the caption from the archives on this photo is dealing with a riot. Um, and you know, it doesn't really look to me like a riot, but it is, I think, photographic evidence of people pressing claims and making demands. So they also make a range of rights claims. They insist on their rights to humanitarianism. And this is a, this is a trope that you, you hear all the time, an insistence that humanitarian aid, most specifically UNRWA, but you know, somewhat broader than that, is not charity. Right? It, is a, it, is evidence of, it is a result of and evidence of an international obligation to Palestinians. And they also insist on their right to humanitarian rights. And so I want to say a little bit more about um, this question of humanitarian rights and think about what, sort of what are they. Because some people might view the pairing of humanitarianism and rights as contradictory, right? Understanding the former to be a domain of care and the latter to entail obligations. But both refugee law and international humanitarian law accord limited rights, including rights of protection, non-discrimination, and in the case of refugee law, non-refoulement, right, the right not to be returned to dangerous conditions. And like many features of international law, the exact nature of humanitarian rights remains globally unsettled. And Palestinians regularly insist on a broader view of these rights than the corpus of IHL might provide for or humanitarian actors acknowledge. So even as they do not come under the 1951 Refugee Convention, Palestinians have demanded access to protection, which was not a part of UNRWA's original mandate. But UNRWA's mandate has expanded to include it. They claim a right to life, where IHL might recognize only a right to a proportional death. They claim a right to political life, where humanitarian discourse might acknowledge only a right to bare life. And they work to link international affirmations of Palestinian rights, such as the right of refugee return, to the obligations of international humanitarian actors. So when refugees newly under Israeli occupation in Gaza protested against forced removals from refugee camps or from the Strip entirely, they used the language of humanitarian rights to press their claims. Demonstrations targeted UNRWA in an effort to enlist the agency's help. So in July 1971, a group of demonstrators, mainly women and children, gathered at the gates of UNRWA's headquarters early in the morning. And according to a report by the official on site, they came from the direction of Jabalia camp, crying, shouting, and demonstrating. And of course, the gendered character of this protest was surely not accidental. Um, it may reflect in part a kind of division of political labor, right, with men more likely to be doing militant activity and women demonstrating. And also, I think, um, may reflect a different vulnerabilities in public assembly. Um, women and children are not wholly insulated from the threat of violent response, and increasingly less so, I'd say, but they are slightly more sheltered from it. So in this case, the protesters pushed their way into the compound and could not be persuaded to quiet down. A small group of protesters was eventually brought in to meet with the director, and when they came out, felt, expressed their satisfaction that the, that the director was going to do um, his best to try to um, press their claims. So then along with this uh, demonstration, um, there were also a series of petitions um, sent uh, to, uh, to UNRWA officials. So the president of UNRWA staff associations, right, so this is a Palestinian refugee employee of UNRWA, wrote to the commissioner general in the latter's capacity as the representative of the secretary general and the United Nations, the guardian of human rights, to put an end to their pain and suffering. 
He cited legal and political bases for objections to the Israeli demolition plan, noting that compulsory movement individually and collectively of the inhabitants of the occupied territories is prohibited in accordance with Article 49 of the Geneva Conventions. And the letter went on to say that the demolitions were political in nature and that UNRWA should work to stop them so that it will not be involved in these political currents which are in conflict with its humanitarian mission. So there's kind of a using of a language of humanitarianism to press kind of political claims. The language of humanitarian rights was here paired with the presence of, humanitarian, of Palestinian bodies as an assertion of their demand to stay in place. So just as Arendt noted that the right to have rights is more fundamental than any of the specific rights of citizens, so too do Palestinians claim a general right to humanitarian rights that underlies any of the specific things they demand as refugees. This right to humanitarian rights entails recognition, however limited, of Palestinian inclusion in an international community. To claim humanitarian rights does not mean the Palestinians are not refugees, but it does constitute an argument that as refugees, they should not live in the condition of arbitrariness that aren't viewed as the lot of the stateless. And in so claiming, they try to redefine the condition of being a refugee. So doing politics within the refugee category often means both claiming and disavowing it. When refugees analyze their own conditions, many gesture to the necessity of this move and to the ways in which they live with this double experience all the time. Omar, a resident of Dehesha, known for its political and social activism, reflected on the contradictions of living in the refugee category. Refugee means you are a person who lacks a lot of things regarding your identity or connected to your original identity. But practically, in daily life, Currently, the Palestinian refugee is one of the most active people in the society. And Abu Akram, also from Dehesha, emphasized the importance of activating the political potential of the refugee condition when he said, some refugees were upset by the word refugee. Some people did not realize the meaning of the word. In fact, I am proud of being a refugee. And the reason is, I'm a refugee, but I'm waiting for return, and I work for return. I became a refugee by force and not by choice. I'm a refugee in this sense. So part of the political potential of the refugee category lies precisely in continuing to assert the status. And this continued assertion is no easy task. The difficulties of many people's lives work against it. Feruz, who's a middle-aged mother of four, born and raised in Jeddah camp, worried about her children. I don't know how much they can bear, because I can see until now that they cannot take the life of refugees. And she also worried about them politically, about what sort of political subjects they will be. She saw a difference between her two oldest boys. Of the eldest, she said, if he gets full rights in Jordan, I'm sure he will forget everything called Palestine. But my second, if he gets all the rights in this country, he will still demand Palestine. I don't know why, although both were raised up in the same way, I don't know why this one has this mentality and the other has another mentality. And Feroz's account reflected patterns and anxieties that I heard throughout my research. So concern that suffering will become too much to bear is the more common feeling. But some people worry that they do not suffer enough. Nisreen, a 32-year-old woman also living in Jeddah, emphasized that she had not suffered as much as other people in the camp. She told me that her parents had hidden the sacrifices they had made to make her life decent. It was only when she became a parent herself that she understood what they had done. And I think this is a common kind of experience. But even as she valued what they had given her, she felt that this lack of suffering made her, in some sense, less fully Palestinian than those, especially those inside, in the territories, who truly suffered. She described watching a television program about life in the territories and concluding, I did not live as a Palestinian. I saw how the suffering is. I spat on myself. I said, we're sitting and having tea and eating and living, and those inside are the ones who live the suffering for real. They are the ones who will get the homeland back, not us. And when my research assistant, a fellow refugee, responded that we suffer outside the homeland, Nasreen offered the rejoinder, we deserve to suffer outside the homeland. They're inside and do not have what we have. We are sitting on chairs and talking. What do they have? They're waiting for a rocket to land on them. How can you demand rights when others suffer more than you do? Now, Nasreen's virulent self-judgment was relatively unusual and may itself have been partly a product of watching from afar the 2009 war on Gaza six months prior to our conversation. 
but it reflects some of the persistent anxieties about how to live right as a refugee. Is living well proof of Palestinian persistence, thriving and not just surviving, or an indication of forgetting the political significance of their lives? There's no single answer to these kinds of questions, but they trouble the field of Palestinian refugee politics across the Middle East. With all of its difficulties, refugee status makes a place in the world for those who live within the category. This category, whose central defining characteristic is the loss of home, the loss of a secure place in the world, also can, perhaps paradoxically, provide an anchor and a framework for world making. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. Thank you.